It's the 31st of March, 2015, and this is episode 200. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the new digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hey. Here to tell us about their decentralized, open-source, peer-to-peer marketplace, Open Bazaar. we're joined by founders Brian Hoffman. Hi. And Washington Sanchez. Howdy. So guys, let's start from the beginning, because this is a, another cool project, big platform type of play. What problem are you solving with Open Bazaar, and why is this the problem that you felt like you needed to solve relative to all of the other ones that you could be working on at this particular moment in you know technology history? Both Washington and I and the other guys that have been working on this project saw a huge hole in the Bitcoin ecosystem in terms of availability of being able to buy goods and services from other people on the internet, in particular, not through the traditional channels. So there were lots of sites like eBay and Etsy and, and these other large networks were not supporting Bitcoin yet. And we thought that, that there was a definitely a gap there for someone to step in and, and try and solve that problem. One of the things that has fascinated us for a long time is, is the concept of decentralizing as much as possible in that process. So, you know, we have this cryptocurrency that that helps decentralize the actual payment platform, but how do we transition to a decentralized marketplace model? When the dark market proof of concept came out, we seized on the opportunity to take, you know, a foundation open source code base and and start to build off of that as the impetus for what became Open Bazaar. So how decentralized actually is Open Bazaar? Because people, I think that there's a broad impression out there that decentralization is like a status that one can attain. But in my experience, it's really more like there's a big gradient where you can be more centralized or more decentralized. And usually projects fall somewhere on the middle because there are meaningful costs to decentralization. You're slower, things are more expensive. You have to make sure that you retain synchronization in in the network. So where in that where was it important to decentralize Open Bazaar, and where are things more centralized? Certainly, Open Bazaar is not 100% decentralized. There are aspects of of our network and our protocol that still rely on some sense of centralization. For instance, we use something called Obelisk. It's kind of like a Bitcoin node. It allows us to query information about the network. All of the Open Bazaar clients can use that to actually find out what's going on in the blockchain. It's obviously optional. Obelisk acts as an oracle because the decentralized peers don't necessarily know who to trust. And so Obelisk is, uh, is it a server product or is it run by a company? So Obelisk is run by the same group that does Dark Wallet. Um, it's part of the LibBitcoin stack and it's kind of a federated model. So it's not truly centralized. Ideally, you would have a bunch of these servers all across the internet run by a bunch of different people, sort of like full nodes. You could pick randomly from them and, and use them to get the information about the Bitcoin network. Right. Um, okay. So, so it's not like a single thing that if it goes down, then the whole Open Bazaar goes down. No, 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 no. And we only use it for a very small portion of what we're doing. It's not a huge point of failure for us. And, and we're also looking at other ways to kind of augment what's going on there. 
and, and people are free to run their own Obelisk server. You can do so. It just it kind of makes it a little bit more complex. Right. There's a convenience factor to somebody else doing it. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with uh, that sort of price discovery mechanism being centralized, even in like, I, I would still consider that not very centralized of all the things. So where yeah. else do you have centralization in the system? If I'm hosting a store, am I hosting that on a server that I you know run myself, rent from somebody else? Does Open Bazaar run servers that I can rent space on? No, and actually that's kind of where we start to separate from the pack in terms of what's centralized and what's not. Our protocol is is a truly peer-to-peer network in the same sense that Bitcoin or BitTorrent is. You run your own client on your own machine and your store information and your listings and all of your order information, things like that is all stored on your own computer. So now when you say that it's stored on my computer, OpenBazaar is a desktop application or it's an application rather than a web-based application. Is that right? Exactly. It's, okay. it's, it's very similar to like a BitTorrent client. It, it, you have to run it on your own machine. Okay. So then when you're saying that I would run a store off my own machine, you're not saying that my machine would act as a server. You're saying that in running the program, there's a section of the application where I can set up a store for myself. And then other people within the network can discover that store. And that essentially is where the network, that is where the marketplace exists on all of these individual desktop applications that are installed on everybody's computer. But the network synchronizes and they're able to do business with each other directly instead of going to a website and having an account and things like that. Exactly. So it doesn't, it doesn't rely on a central server hosting platform or infrastructure. Everybody talks to each other directly. So what are the weaknesses of this model? I mean, one of the things that stores provide, it seems like, is curation. If you go to Amazon, they're doing fraud prevention and things like that. So are those services provided by this type of marketplace or is that just like kind of outside of the scope of this sort of thing? Yeah, I think one of the advantages of Open Bazaar is that we can we can wear the decentralized badge pretty proudly. I mean, the we're using a distributed hash table. Our approach is virtually identical to BitTorrent. And that was and is the standard for decentralized networks before Bitcoin came along. I think within the Bitcoin bubble, people tend to think like Bitcoin was the first peer-to-peer decentralized network that ever came along. And that's the way that they talk about it. And so they're trying to make the blockchain model fit onto every decentralized application they want to build. And it really doesn't make sense because The blockchain approach is great for establishing decentralized and distributed consensus over something that a lot of people want to have consensus over. And so when you have things that a lot of people don't want to have consensus over, then the blockchain model really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But, you know, we see a lot of projects still persist in trying to make a blockchain out of absolutely everything. So blockchains are good for products where, you know, like if we want to put something into the blockchain and then check in a couple of years and be absolutely sure that the thing we put in the blockchain a few years ago is going to be the same, and we can assume that as a constant, that's very different than the type of network that you're creating where I might be offering a product and then, you know, in two weeks I want to lift, list a different product. And it really doesn't matter to me if people... So, okay, so so you're, you've built a, a secondary network or a, a, like a... I don't want to say auxiliary because that implies that one is sort of subservient to the other. Um, they're complementary, I guess, might be the word for it. So Open Bazaar has not made a new token. You have made a platform that allows for essentially market and order discovery between people who have stuff that they want to sell and people who want to buy that stuff. And then you use Bitcoin through the rails that you've created within its protocol to provide the payment layer on that. So you've built everything but the payment layer. That's precisely right. Yeah. And you said the word discovery, and that's actually spot on. 
the BitTorrent style peer-to-peer network that we've created with OpenBazaar is for market discovery. Our view is that if you're going to be selling your 50-year-old chair, you don't need a distributed consensus about the fact that you want to sell that chair. You can just host your node on the network and you can try and sell that and sell that using Bitcoin. One of the things that's nice about not running your business's server off of your home computer, as one might run this application, is that if I get a ton of traffic, it's not going to impact my computer. I'm you know, paying somebody a dollar or two to host, you know, host my website on a server someplace else being managed by somebody else. So I understand with the type of BitTorrent model, people tend to be sharing things that are popular and that lots of people would like to have. And so there's like the sharing dynamic. How does it work with stores? Like if my store gets wildly popular, what would incentivize other people within the network to host other versions of my store so that the bandwidth isn't all coming out of me? One thing that's interesting about what we're building is that there's a lot of flexibility in, in how you would implement it. And so obviously, the, the first kind of model that we're building is to have this lightweight client that runs on your own machine. If you were to get more serious and, and have a, a store that would have a larger demand, and a larger load, there is the possibility for people to set up you know, sort of a hosted solution, maybe something that's hosted in the cloud that could support kind of this bigger merchant model. We think that this thing takes off, that that's certainly quite feasible and, and probably would need to happen in order to support that. We also have, like Washington mentioned, uh, a distributed hash table, which is essentially a, a distributed database across the entire network. And so each peer on the network could store information about the marketplace. And so therefore, we could implement something where contracts are kind of stored across the network. You're, you're distributing the load that your software may have to incur because you're, you're more popular. And there's just so many other ways that you could go down and, and kind of tweak that model. This is kind of an ongoing experiment, right? You know, we haven't solved all the problems. You know, for instance, someone could introduce some kind of pay for storage model where larger stores are kind of contributing back to the network to uh, distribute that load. And I think Washington's done a lot of theory work around some of these things. Washington, what you, I mean, you have some thoughts on this. What you just said really covers a lot of it, but there is a lot of flexibility and it does come down to, you know, what are we actually representing in our stores? And uh, we haven't touched on it yet, but the way that we're presenting goods and services that are going to be sold on the network is through Ricardian contracts. And these Ricardian contracts are essentially just digital files where you have the terms of what each party are going to be agreeing to. Each party includes their public key as their identifier, and they use digital signatures to basically create a tamper-proof contract that signifies that both parties agree to it. And so these contracts are extremely lightweight. They're very, they're just essentially text files. So you can distribute these text files through virtually any medium. I mean, if you really wanted to, you could just write it out on paper and mail it, you know, using the uh, US Postal Service or Australia Post as we have down here. Or you can host them on your website. You can email them. You can distribute them basically any way that you, that you want. The point is, is that in the way that we've designed it is that once you import these contracts into the OpenBazaar client, you can extract all the necessary details you need to connect to your counterparty's node. And after connecting to them, you can start to initiate the trade according to the market protocol that we've created. How far along are you guys as far as 
the roadmap to, you know, the product that people will be using? What stage of development is it in? Currently, we're in what we call a beta phase, which is, is actually probably, realistically, it's a little more early than that. But the concept is that we're trying to periodically release new code so that the community can kind of read it and understand it and, and test it out and give feedback as we push towards a final version of the, of the protocol. I think we're still several months out from having something that we can really reliably push out to a large audience. The majority of the team, actually all of the team is working on the project part-time. It's not a, it's not a full-time gig for us. It's something we do in addition to our day job. So it's not proceeding as fast as you know necessarily a lot of people would like to see it. But we're making good progress nonetheless. And, and we have so many contributors and from all around the world that it's quite fascinating to try and incorporate all these different ideas and concepts. Yeah. So how much time did you spend before actually doing any coding, just sort of laying out the theory and the philosophy of it, I guess, or the sketching out like what it was going to look like? So that's one of the great things about about this project is that it attracted so many people that had already spent so many man hours kind of thinking through these problems, even writing things. One of our, our core team members, Dionysus Zindros, he actually did his master's thesis on Open Bazaar in, in Greece on a web of trust and reputation. We spent a considerable amount of time thinking through a lot of the challenges and the different aspects that we were going to incorporate into what became Open Bazaar. So I don't know the exact amount of time, but it, it was a considerable amount, you know, and it happened well before anything was ever coined as Open Bazaar. Let's Talk Bitcoin actually is partially responsible for a lot of the theory development behind Open Bazaar. So it was about a year ago, I was writing a couple of articles for Let's Talk Bitcoin. And I said to Adam, Adam, I'm going to write an article for you on something called the trade net. And I kept promising Adam that I would write this, this, this beautiful article that would basically outline how a decentralized marketplace would work. And then all of a sudden, dark market popped up. And then it was like, well, either finish writing the article or actually go and help build the thing. It was a good article outline you had, too. Yeah. You know? That's why I kept bothering you, <laughs> because you wrote a good outline for it. So I figured this was probably more valuable than an article. <laughs> I think you're probably right. Good choice. <laughs> On to what Brian was saying, Dionysus and myself, and, and I know a lot of other people had spent a lot of time thinking about this. I mean, for me personally, I'd heard uh, Mike Hearn talk about something called the trade net, where it was this vision of this decentralized network where uh, humans or, you know, what's the buzz term, the distributed autonomous corporations or organizations or what have you would connect to this network. They would put out a, a request for some good or service and, you know, whatever they received back as sort of a tender process, they would filter out and select like if they were trying to buy some sort of quadcopter part, that they would select the best part for the cheapest price and select a courier. And all of this could happen through a very complex but very a straightforward set of APIs. And it could all be paid for using Bitcoin. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a really interesting idea. And we can do a lot more with that. And I'd also been following Open Transactions because Open Transactions had been talking about implementing some sort of marketplace in their system. In my reading, I came across the concept of recording contracts. And so when Dark Market appeared, it was just a perfect opportunity to marry some of these elements together. Dark Market was a project that came out of Amir Taki's camp. 
Now, tell me about the decision to work on a fork of it called Open Bazaar relative to just pitching into the original effort. It's kind of an interesting story, and it didn't start out as positively as it has ended up. But just like everyone else, I, I saw that the Toronto Hackathon that Amir Ataki and several others had put together this project called Dark Market over like a two-day period and, and released it open source on GitHub. Just the concept is fascinating. And I had been looking for an interesting project to get involved with. And so I reached out to Amir immediately and said, Hey, you know, like I would love to help contribute to Dark Market and help you like make this a reality. And he wrote me back, you know, he quickly wrote me back nicely and said, Thanks for the compliments, but you know, we don't plan on doing anything with this. This was just to make some money because they were trying to, I believe, support the development of Dark Wallet, which they were heads down trying to get out their first release. And so he kind of passed on it and said, you know, go for it, do whatever. And since it was going to be like this clean break between what they were doing and, and what kind of I envisioned it could be, which was, you know, personally, I think it was a lot broader than kind of what the singular focus of dark market was, which was to just prove that free, open, basically replacement for Silk Road could, could happen. I, I, I thought that there was just so much more potential if we addressed a, a bigger vision. And so with that, I decided, you know, it kind of needs a name change, not to mention, you know, calling it dark market still kind of aligned with their dark something branding. And it just, it didn't, it didn't quite fit. It didn't feel right. So I just forked it. I came up with Open Bazaar. And then I actually went on Reddit and solicited support to see if anybody else felt the way that I did about actually making it come to life. I think you can go back and still see the thread where I asked for help and, and it was like crickets. You know, there was nothing, like nobody was willing to support. So I kind of just started hacking away at it and looking at what they had. And then very slowly, more and more people started kind of, you know, coming into the, to the GitHub community and, you know, it just kind of grew from there. That's kind of where I started to meet folks like Washington and, and Dionysus and, and uh, some others who have just been instrumental and have worked really hard over the last, I guess, almost nine months on this project to get us where we're at now. So another project that Dark Market was sort of similar to, I guess, the NXT free market. Are you guys familiar with that one? I'm personally not that familiar with it. I haven't used it that much. I think I fired it up one time. You know, obviously, we're always looking to see what comes out that's kind of in our space and see what's people are doing because we all kind of share ideas that all these concepts kind of overlap. But I haven't seen anything super promising from it. And I think that, you know, one big piece that's missing from a lot of these different projects is an organization, right? Is like true organization camaraderie and community. Uh, A lot of these projects are, are driven by a few devs who are just kind of experimenting. And so they lose focus and they don't accomplish what they want to do. And I think personally, it seems like they, they're one of those products that's kind of fallen into that trap. I haven't seen anything super captivating about it. And also, it also relies on NXT, which our concept is more, yes, we're using Bitcoin right now as the, as the currency of choice, but it's not really specific to Bitcoin, right? It's agnostic in terms of which coin you would want to use, as long as they support this multi-signature transaction model you could plug in just about any of those altcoins. 
So, you know, we think that eventually down the road, Open Bazaar could support many different types of coins. I had a brief discussion with, with the Ethereum team. You know, they were curious if we were thinking about maybe supporting that. And we've gotten so many emails, you know, in regards to like, do, would we support NXT or Dark Coin or a non coin, like all these different coins? I mean, basically two emails a week or something like that. Exactly. And so, you know, it's like, yes, that would be cool. Is that our focus right now? No, we have so many other things to worry about. But yes, it could be done later on down the road. Why is multi-signature support required? Is there some kind of an escrow service? And can you talk more about that? So the multi-signature aspect of the project is probably one of the most critical components. I mean, this is how we're basically going to be ensuring that people don't get goxed. So people are not sending over their coins over to you know, the person who wants to sell and then they just run away with the funds or worse, or maybe just, just as bad. You're sending it to one other person who's holding it on your behalf and they can just wait, play the long con and then run off with the funds. At the time of this recording, evolution has just collapsed. And this is a situation where you had somebody acting as an escrow agent where they're holding Bitcoin on behalf of other users. And just as we've seen a dozen other times, they get corrupted and they run away with the funds and then everybody's left holding the bag. So the way that we're approaching it is very different. We're implementing and we're using multi-signature escrow where the multi-signature address has at the minimum three signing keys, one for the buyer, one for the seller, and one for a third party known as the, or that we call the notary. Now, this notary escrow agent can be selected from a marketplace of, of people who identify themselves as notaries, and both the buyer and the seller have to come to some sort of consensus as to who they are going to entrust with the tie-breaking vote in the event of a dispute. So in this particular model, you will not have a situation where one of the parties can just abscond with the funds and then run away. Having said that, there is the risk of collusion between the escrow agent and either the buyer or the seller. But in that particular situation, you know, we have approaches that we're developing at the moment to do with trust and reputation, et cetera, that will help people identify who is going to be a good selection for a notary. A notary would have to have an established reputation, not just to know either the buyer or the seller. That wouldn't really be enough. For them to make it in the long term, they'd really have to establish themselves as being neutral. Yeah, pretty much. They have to establish themselves as being neutral, respected. One really good example of something like this that's already out there is the work done at Bitrated. So what they have is an association of essentially what we would call notaries who will be participating in multi-signature escrow between two parties. And then you can select from a big list of of notaries that they have collected. And each of them has a reputation system. They have their own way of quantifying what the reputation of other people. And so you would basically select the one that's most appropriate to you. So I'm starting to see how the multi-sig fits in and how crucial it is as a component. Does Open Bazaar include some kind of a wallet implementation? Do you guys see a wallet as like a key component of a system like this? Like does a wallet fit in with a marketplace or a trading platform or a bazaar? <laughs> we don't have what you might consider a wallet. I don't think it has anything that would 
classify itself as a wallet. I mean, to me, ideally, a wallet is really just a keychain of your keys, right? But it also provides a lot of functionality that you would expect from a true wallet, right? Like sending coins places and, and monitoring transactions and things like that. So in that sense, no, it's not a wallet. We do generate BIP32 compliant keys for conducting the multi-signature transactions. So when you create your storefront, you get a seed key that can be, you know, that you can generate other unique keys off of that can be used in all of your different transactions. In that sense, you know, your key is it's sort of a wallet. You're never sending money to that key. So what what happens is if you wanted to purchase a good from somebody, you would send your bizarre public key to them. And then the merchant would take their public key that they have. And then the notary would would combine their key with the other two keys and they would form a multi-signature address. Then that address is where you would send funds to. And you would send those funds from your own personal Bitcoin wallet. You could send it from anywhere, to be honest. It doesn't really matter where those funds come from as long as they end up into that multi-signature address. Once the merchant would see that those funds have been delivered to the multi-signature address, they would ship the good or deliver it. If everybody was happy and the merchant and the buyer could just release the funds from that multi-signature escrow address to the merchant, wherever address he wants it to go to. So it's not really, it's, not, it's never really sitting kind of in your open bazaar wallet per se. Those keys are just mostly to actually make the transactions execute properly. This episode is brought to you by the Tokenly Open Source Project, FoldingCoin.net, and SMVoice.info. The magic word for this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is trade. That's T-R-A-D-E. Trade. You've got until the 7th of April to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. of market are you actually developing this application for? Are we talking like existing merchants or people who want to start a business? And why would I want to set up an open bazaar store compared to setting up just a normal web store? And finally, is what you're offering with open bazaar complementary to existing options? Like I would have an open bazaar store as well as these other options, or you think it's the sort of thing where the functionality could eventually actually, you know, I would just want to have open bazaar and that would serve all my needs. Well, ideally, yes, that would be great. That last scenario would be perfect, right? Like we just rule the world, Um, you know, (laughs) to answer your question about what kind of marketplace are we trying to build? I don't, I don't know if we're trying to decide that we're trying to build something that the community will, will decide what, what that is, right? Like, so we're making it an open protocol on purpose. We're, We're trying to bring in as many different points of view on purpose so that we decide as a group where this is going. Obviously, we have to provide some level of structure and guidance as to which way we're generally moving. But 
we try to solicit as much input as possible. So, well, I think of- that's all fine, but open transactions, for example, has been a project that I've been watching in the decentralized space for probably, I think it's going on five or six years at this point. They've been around for a very long time. They've done great work. And I've never once used one of their releases because they chose to focus on core technology rather than user applications. So I, under- I agree with what you're saying. I still want to press you. I feel like there has to be some kind of vision for who you're actually building this for. Are, we, are you building a product that serves your own needs? I mean, like just who is your customer? And maybe they don't exist yet. Maybe your customer needs to be educated to know that they, you know, that they should be your customer. So that's what I'm trying to figure out is, who am I if I'm having a good experience with what you're building? My mother and my sister run an online business. And originally, their business was run through eBay. And they had done it for many years. There's obviously a lot of issues with eBay stores. And everybody's heard all the horror stories in, you know, in terms of how they manage their relationships with their users. In particular, dealing with PayPal stuff. So you have a lot of situations where you're freezing funds and you know unfair handling of, of of problems, things like that, right? So they worked for many years building a reputation within that eBay silo and, and paying many, many, many hundreds and thousands of dollars of fees to them in order to use their system, which they never were really very happy with, right? So along came Etsy and they decided to join that. So now now they work on Etsy. And originally, Etsy started out very is an upstart. You know, it's kind of disrupting what eBay was doing. You know, it's focused on homemade goods, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, slowly over time, as they grow, they kind of all start to converge back into that that eBay model, where you're starting to charge extra fees and and place other restrictions and, and control people. And so, you know, our thought is that that's just going to keep happening, right? Like that's just going to, as long as there's a, a store that has central control over all these aspects of, of the e-commerce, they're going to continue to go towards that restrictive model and try to extract as much profit from that. Ideally, a decentralized marketplace like what we want to build would provide the benefit of not only keeping that from happening, but create a more democratized uh, view of of actually any kind of commerce, right? So if we're just talking, I'm selling a good and you're buying a good from me, that's like the most basic type of transaction you can do online. Something like Open Bazaar could support so many different types of transactions. It kind of falls somewhere between what you hear with something like Ethereum, where it's like they, they can do anything, right? They're Turing complete and they support anything you can possibly dream of. And then also like just a straight Bitcoin transaction. We're somewhere in the middle. These recording contracts that we've talked about earlier, they're basically freeform structures that can model just about any kind of activity on the internet. So you could build a decentralized Uber type system. You could do auctions. You could do peer-to-peer lending. You can model all these different types of activities. That's what I mean by let's let the community decide, right? So like, the structure so, allows for basically any type of custom, not, not, not necessarily any type. You can't do recursive stuff, it sounds like. Um, recording contracts are not smart contracts. So that's probably the first thing we should get away. So what, get what are the, the what's with. the difference between those two things? Is, is there a simple difference between them in terms of how they behave? Or? I think when you, when you talk about smart contracts, it's a bit of a buzzword, but essentially what it gets down to is that they have some level of self-execution. So they have scripting parameters. When you publish it to the network, you know, it takes over from there. It's really an if-then statement, you know, written in some sort of digital form. Recording contracts are not that. As a matter of fact, you can incorporate a smart contract in a recording contract, but 
That's not what recording contracts are. Recording contracts allow you to add lots of different parameters that can be read by computers, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the computer will know what to do with it. It just basically allows you to come to some sort of tamper-proof consensus as to the details of what two people agree to. So if I say, I agree to mow your lawn for 40 bitcoins, it must be a huge lawn, but anyway, let's say I, I agree to mow your lawn for 40 bitcoins. You can write that in a Ricardian contract and you can connect to the person that you're going to, to do the business with on the Open Bazaar network. Now, just because you do that doesn't mean that Open Bazaar knows what a lawn is or what mowing means or anything like that. The parties that are involved understand the terms of that agreement. What the Ricardian contract will provide and what will include are the public keys to basically verify that these two identities came to this agreement. It will also include the Bitcoin public key and the multi-signature escrow details so that trade can proceed. So is it a standardized, cryptographically secured, but not self-executing contract? That's probably a very concise way of putting it. (laughs) Much better than I did. Your explanation makes sense. And again, it's fascinating because you're right. All of these words, like people just kind of use them because we all have some sort of vague sci-fi notion about what things yeah, mean, but it's, yeah, right. it's, it's very good to, okay. So it's a common frame of reference. I understand that. So contracts are not self-executing in your environment, but they are machine readable, essentially. That's the precise point of what recording contracts are for. But it's not just that these uh, contracts are machine readable. They're also human readable. The creator of the Ricardian contract, Ian Grigg, who's actually uh, working with us to, to a degree and, and help developing these ideas, when he wrote his seminal article on it, that was the, the key point. They need to be both human-readable and machine-readable. And the way that we're formatting our contracts are in JSON, and it's, it's very uh, friendly to humanize and people who are, are not even that familiar with code. They can see, okay, what is my ID? And then it corresponds to Washington. You know, what's my Bitcoin public key? And then you see the corresponding key value. The point that Brian was making before as to what marketplaces can be built on OpenBazaar, these recording contracts, you know, we are developing certain templates for certain types of marketplaces. But just because we develop what we think are good standards doesn't mean that that's what the market is going to select. We plan on very shortly engaging with the community and in developing some of these contract standards for all sorts of different marketplaces. And the different marketplaces, if you go to the GitHub page for OpenBazaar and scroll down to theory work, I've written a lot of articles about all the different types of marketplaces that can be built on top of OpenBazaar using this hyper-extensible Ricardian contract system. So just like Brian said, we can do peer-to-peer lending, we can do auctions, services. I think we can even get away with shares and bonds, risk, insurance. And something that uh, I'm particularly proud of, I worked with a friend of mine, and we developed uh, something called a bounded futures contract. So this is where you can hedge against the price volatility, or really basically the outcome of any sort of event. What meaningful differences in the code are there between dark market and between open bazaar? One of the critical things to note about dark market, it was built in 48 hours, right? And there's only so much you could do with it. It was basically to prove that some of these concepts could be kind of put together. And so we've pretty much rewritten and replaced just about everything on that source code. It seems like a peer-to-peer network, but what they did was they basically just had a couple 
it could support a handful of users, basically, the, the way that it was built. And what we've done is we've overhauled that and created an entirely scalable peer-to-peer network. It's going to be able to support a true production type of network. Another thing that we added that wasn't there originally is, is the entire concept around Ricardian contracts. They had some kind of notion of, this is information about what I want to buy and you're going to get it. But there was no real thought about, is this going to be structured content? Is this going to be just freeform, whatever? Like, how, how is that going to work, right? And so all of this theory work that Washington has done has brought a lot more organization into what, what that would look like, right? It sounds like you took what was essentially a proof of concept and have taken it to, you know, beyond the prototype phase, maybe at the minimum viable product phase now, and you're trying to get towards something you can release. Exactly. I mean, we, we tried very hard to kind of just extend what they had, but then it became very obvious early on that it wasn't something that we could do. And we pretty much rewritten the majority of it. Are there any other things that we should talk about with regards to functionality? You know, if people want to try out the software, is it uh, available? You said that you have a beta release out. So, you know, what's that look like? Right now, um, what you can go and like download and try to build, we'll get you on what is considered the network right now. We've seen something like, I think, 400 different stores or so and like over a thousand different contracts created on what's, what's considered the network right now. But we're actually in the middle of a complete overhaul of the networking stack. So early on when we released their betas, there were a lot of things that, that just didn't work as well as intended because building a peer-to-peer network is not a simple task, right? It's taken Bitcoin like a bunch of years and BitTorrent's been around and had a lot of trouble. And you see Skype had a lot of peer-to-peer issues. It's not, it's not an easy thing to do. And so we're kind of struggling with some of the same challenges. Our next release is hoping to address a lot of that. It's been proving to be a lot more stable. So... Right now, you can go and download and build it. We recommend waiting until the next release, which should be soon, hopefully. And it will be much more stable and you'll be able to conduct buying and selling basic good, having the notary involved and just doing kind of the basic use case. We're going to try and get that out to Linux, Mac OS X and uh, Windows when that, when that happens. We don't want to discourage anybody from participating, but at this point, it's a very, very tech-savvy audience that would, would be able to get it up and running. People can find you at openbazaar.org. Now, you mentioned that this is a part-time project for you, and you guys all have day jobs. So is the intent to keep it that way? Just keep it as a volunteer project going, you know, slow burner in the background? Or are you thinking about looking for funding, whether community or venture? Well, it's worse than that, actually. Not only do we have full-time jobs, A lot of the core developers are married with kids. It's been a really long and interesting process. Many sleepless nights. It works out great, though, because Washington is in Australia, if you guys didn't know already. And we're on the east coast of the United States. So, you know, we get home from our day jobs and he's waking up and we're we're ready to roll. So uh, sometimes it works out well. Get a 24-hour team going there. Exactly. (laughs) But I mean, you know, realistically, that's, it's, it's, it's something that it's an advantage that our product has that we, we find endearing because this kind of marketplace is only going to work. It's only going to become a truly borderless global marketplace if it understands the needs of people all around the world, right? Like it just can't, it can't spring up right out of San Francisco 
and just hope to really be able to capture that, that, that interest in that audience, right? Like we want feedback from everywhere and we have people working on the project from just about everywhere, you know, Australia, Europe, all over America. So truly a global effort. And it's, it's just been amazing to see. Um, we went to um, the FOSDEM conference in Belgium a month ago or so. We got to meet a whole bunch of different people who knew about Open Bazaar. We did a, a short talk there and the crowd started giving us an applause before we even started speaking. It was just amazing to see what people knew uh, before we even introduced ourselves. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's been, you know, just uh, again, the project has been underway from prototype phase or from uh, Amir's original proof of concept less than nine months ago. So, yeah, the types of growth and uh, progress you guys have been able to take it from those early days is really interesting. So, you know, let's jump ahead and assume for a second that you're able to accomplish all of your ambitions. You know, talk to me about five years in the future. What does the network look like? Is it still an application running on somebody's computer? Do we have dedicated devices? What do you think? could this become if you're successful? First and foremost, our team is building this as a truly free and open protocol and network standard. It's not something that we ever intend to turn into some kind of closed off network or anything, right? Like we MIT license this software and we publish it on GitHub and that's the way it's going to remain. But we're hoping by doing that, that we're going to get a lot of interest from different areas and the people are going to drive what it turns into. My vision is that, you know, eventually down the road, it's almost like Open Bazaar is this market of marketplaces, right? Like a network of marketplaces, essentially. So you could have all these different niche type marketplaces. Like let's say Etsy decides to jump on the Open Bazaar network. They could publish their products across the Open Bazaar network. They would provide this curated kind of portal on their site that would allow people to kind of get a unique Etsy experience, but yet underlying protocol could be open bazaar. All these marketplaces could be interoperable. And another thing that we didn't really kind of get into is reputation and trust. And, and the way that this would work is that now your reputation, all that, that you've earned by being a good merchant or a good buyer or a good notary is now transportable across all these different networks, right? Like now that we have this blockchain technology, you can use that to have this kind of central consensus system and you can build a reputation layer on top of that that could be used across every site. And so now it's not that Etsy or eBay or Craigslist or whoever owns these, these reputation scores and you know, can manipulate them or whatever. Now you own your data. You own your identity data, your reputation and I think that's a very powerful concept and it's something that will foster a lot of innovation. And I think that, you know, it also kind of takes away a lot of the burden that some of these sites have to tackle, right? Like they have to build their own reputation systems. They have to build their own identity systems. They have to build their own payment systems. Now all this stuff is kind of becoming unbundled, right? Like Bitcoin is now serving as this payment platform. You know, OpenBazaar could be this transport layer for goods and services, the contracting system. It could also leverage Namecoin or, or OneName or something like that, you know, as, as like a universal identity and uh, reputation layer. So all these things are starting to get kind of ripped out of these e-commerce silos. And that, that's what I think is just going to build the foundation for the future. For myself, when I think about five to 10 years into the future, 
I, I kind of look backwards first because I, I think back to Satoshi when he was making Bitcoin. And there's evidence where he tried to make some sort of e-commerce system into the Bitcoin reference client, and uh, he gave up on that. And so I think Open Bazaar and similar efforts, I'm not going to just say what we're doing by ourselves, but similar efforts to create decentralized marketplaces are the completion of a vision that he really started. I mean, what's the point of having a decentralized censorship-resistant currency if you can't spend that currency on a decentralized censorship-resistant marketplace? And I think that's the real goal here. And I think if we can create a thriving de-commerce, uh, if you will, a decentralized e-commerce, that would really be the, the achievement of our goal here. We want to see this sort of thing just take off and go viral and go everywhere. That would be a big win for us, just to sort of see all of these centralized silos just be taken down one after another. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by FoldingCoin.net, where you can mine medicine rather than hashes, smvoice.info, and the Tokenly Open Source Project. Content for today's episode was provided by Brian, Washington, Stephanie, and Adam. Music for today's episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.